Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. We are in a new sermon series. Sean kicked us off with final thoughts. And this is Jesus's last teaching Uh, We know Matthew wrote his gospel in a very ordered, uh, specific way, and he gave us five blocks of teaching from Jesus. Obviously, we know he kicked it off with the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the, we're in the last week of his life, and this is where he's kind of, hey, these are my last words. He knows his life's coming to an end. He is, he's going to be going to the cross here in a few days, and he has the crowds, he has the disciples, and he's pouring into them. The kicker is it's a little bit different than the first time he taught or the second time he taught. You know, when you think of the Beatitudes, and that's a great study if you've seen that in your life groups, we've kind of been talking through that, of comparing the Beatitudes with the woes of Jesus and how those kind of not complement each other, but contrast one another. And so what Jesus, when he came onto the scene and he's preaching and he talks about the Beatitudes, this is what he wants to see in Israel and see in the people, and he doesn't. And then when he gets to the end of his ministry, he brings the woes to saying, hey, what I should have seen, I didn't see. And because I didn't, we got to have a conversation. And it's a hard conversation. So just going to be fair warning you, I can't preach the woes of Jesus and cause you to feel like a nice, warm chocolate chip cookie going home, right? So this one's going to, this one's going to sting a few times, and it should, because if if Jesus is going to speak the woes here, and they're going to be recorded in Scripture through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think there's some gleaning that we need to take from it as the church. And so, if you have your Bibles, open up Matthew 23. We are going to pick up at verse 23 and read to the end. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, 
so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those usually aren't verses that you see hanging up in somebody's house. Oh, you hypocrites. Oh, you scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you. Be like, oh, I love that. We got the little plaque in your bathroom. This fills me with hope as I'm washing my hands. And again, a part of why I love the Calvary Chapel movement and why uh, I line up with that is if I... If it was up to me and just getting to pick the favorite parts of Scripture that I'm going to preach, there are certain areas that's like, I really don't want to preach that. I really don't wake up on the mornings and think, you know what we need? Let's walk through the woes of Jesus. But because we walk book by book, verse by verse, it's going to force us to have hard conversations. But they're good conversations. They're needed conversations. And what we have to understand is it's loving to say the hard things. And so just prepare our hearts. This isn't a me versus you. This is an us thing. Prepare our hearts. Because sometimes we need the rod and the staff. And it brings comfort to know that we are aligning with what God wants to see in us. And so first out in this, as we're jumping just in the middle of the woes, Jesus is looking at these scribes and Pharisees. And he's saying, you guys tithe a seasoning packet. You guys are McCormick. Dill, mints, and cumin, and they, they were very precise on these small little details of having these gardens, and you can read some of the Jewish uh, laws, not in the Old Testament, but in their like Talmud and some of their own interpretations of it, and you had to keep this very nice, neat, organized little garden, and you know, you'd pick your little leaves, and that would be your tithe to the Lord. Oh, bless, oh, my soul, that the Lord has mint and dill in case he wants to make a little mojito or whatever those other drinks are. He doesn't need a seasoning packet. He needs our hearts. And they were so focused on doing the little things that they missed the big things. And so this morning you might be thinking, oh, here's the pastor again talking about money. You're right, and we should. Is it not something a part of our lives? that tithing really does matter. And that word tithe, that means a tenth. And that's nowhere negated in the rest of Scripture. And you hear sometimes churches will talk about tithes and offerings. Well, what's the difference? Well, a tithe is a tenth of your income. And an offering is anything above of that. And tithing matters because it's an act of worship. And, I mean, wouldn't we want to address every act of worship? I mean, imagine if we switched it out and been like, uh, hey, as a pastor, I really don't want to talk about prayer because I know that could get awkward, me talking about your prayer life. So I just won't talk about it. 
or any other act of worship. You know, we're, we're not going to talk about how we should play music and sing. We should just get rid of Andy and the team because that might be off-putting to some people because so many churches out there, they're always just talking about the music. Well, it's an act of worship. And so is what we do with the finances that God has blessed us with. That tithing really isn't what we're giving to God. It's what we're giving back. Because do we have anything that did not come from the hand of the Lord? And so 100% of what I have is his, even my own life. And I've been bought with a price. So for him to ask for that 10% back, this is an act of worship. And that, that those terms might be hard to hear, tithing, offering, and da, da, da. Uh, what I like to say as we, you know, encouraging each other on the staff is this is worship money. This is worship money. So it's not something that you have to do in putting something in the black box or on the online or whatever it is. It's something that I get to do. This is worship money, that I'm going to worship the Lord with what he has given me, just like your time, just like your talents, but also our treasure. So this is worship money. And I encourage the staff, it is, it is upon us to make sure that we handle worship money appropriately. And we need to steward for impact. And the goal isn't to try to be as prudent as possible. And the goal isn't to try to be as extravagant as possible with money. The goal, as with any act of worship, is to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And so in the little cute little video, well, it's not really cute because I'm in it, but in the video that we have in the morning that says, hey, the impact that we are able to make as a church is made possible by your giving, we mean that. And we want to guard well worship money, that we are in this together. And so all of us giving unto the Lord and the ministry that he's doing. And, and you could go to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I wish we could talk more there. But uh, Paul addresses the idea of, of tithing. And you'll hear words connected to tithing like cheerful, cheerful giver. So you can't give begrudgingly and be like, oh, I was going to go buy a new fishing lure. But no, I got to give to the Lord and throw it in there. No, he wants a cheerful giver. You'll hear words like abundance, bountifully. You'll even hear tithing is producing thanksgiving to God. It's not just dropping, you know, a few quarters in there, but we are bringing thanksgiving to God. We're causing thanksgiving to rise unto the Lord through what he's given to us. So to sum it all up, we could say as followers of Jesus, generosity, that's our privilege. But a couple zingers. If our only focus is just to meet the bare minimum need, generosity will never happen. And we are called to be generous through our acts of worship and through our tithing. And so generosity is our privilege. And giving to Jesus in a financial means, that's an act of worship that fully connects us with the heart of Jesus. If you want to see where somebody is truly passionate, just follow the bank account, right? Just like when they're trying to... Uh, uh, find some corrupt organization. Just follow the money. You'll see what they're really passionate about. Just follow the money. See where it goes. And that's what they're passionate about. The convicting thing is, what if we all had to stand up here and show our bank accounts? Follow the money. What's important to us? McRibs. <laughs> but just like any act of worship, if we are inconsistent and insufficient in any act of worship, the concern is that the church 
will become bankrupt, not just financially, but of way more concern spiritually. Tithing is a spiritual act of worship. I mean, think about it. One of our preaching loses its zeal for biblical truth. Nah, we know that's what the Lord wants us to do, but we're just not comfortable with that. We're going to go with the path that is more comfortable in our preaching. What if we, you know, if our worship loses its zeal for uh, the presence of God and the moving of his spirit? Nobody likes that song. We, there's, there's even worship songs now that they remove certain lyrics out of it because we can't talk about the wrath of God being satisfied. No, that's, that hurts too much, so let's remove that. Let's take the path of least resistance. Let's be comfortable. So far, there's even some churches that's like, let's just play some secular music so we can warm the crowd up. Now, it would be kind of cool to walk in here if I'm walking through Revelation and we're, you know, preaching through that and Andy wants to play a little Highway to Hell. <laughs> just saying, I, you know, there, there'd be an idea there. Be a thought. But what if our fellowship loses its zeal for brotherly love? And now nah, well, I'll go to life group because I'm forced to and I want to be a good Christian. And we lose accountability and encouragement. Like I, I don't want to point out flaws and errors. I don't want to point out where there could be gaps and, and some danger zones in somebody else's life because that would be too awkward. So I might as well just sit back and just let them walk into sin and destruction because the conversation would be too bad. It would be too hard. It, it could ruin our friendship. So we just sit back and let them ruin their lives because we're afraid to be accountable. As followers of Jesus, how far can we wander away from true biblical acts of worship and still be considered the body of Christ? If it makes sense in our preaching, if it makes sense in our worship, if it makes sense in our serving, does it not make sense in our tithing? It's the same thing. Will I trust the Lord with what he has given me? For some reason, I'm here in Lake of the Ozarks. Welcome. And am I going to trust what the Lord is doing through my life? Am I going to trust that if I am late in traffic and I really want to tell everybody else what I think, that the Lord might have me late so that I could come across somebody else and share the love of Christ? or even just walking through Walmart. Like, am I gonna trust the Lord with my time? Some of you guys have amazing giftings. We're seeing that through the worship, through other acts of serving and worshiping the Lord through those. Lord has given you those. He's given and he's gifted you with those. Are you gonna serve the Lord with those? Instead of, nah, that'd be too weird. I don't wanna wanna do that. It's the same thing. Are we gonna serve the Lord? Are we gonna trust him with our time? Are we gonna trust him with our talents? Now we're going to trust them with our treasures. And I'm not trying to be the awkward push. You know, if you have any questions about the finances, don't talk to me. Uh, but I have a person that you do need to talk to. The board handles all of that. I do not know what anybody gives, and I don't want to know. I don't trust myself. Because what I would be afraid is I would become biased in being a pastor. So regardless of what you drop in there, I want to walk with you as you follow Christ. And I want to be an encouragement in that. And so I don't know. And I've asked the board strictly. I don't want to know, and I don't want anybody on staff to know whatsoever so that we could in a very unbiased, because we're sinners. I don't know if you knew that or not. We're horrible. We're rotten. And I don't want to give the devil a foothold to cause us to lead in an unworthy manner, that we would only focus on those that give a lot and we would overlook those that maybe don't give much. No, 
We need to love everyone. That if the Lord has brought them into our uh, local congregation, let it be for six months, six years, the Lord has asked us, walk with these people, love them. When we were down in Florida for our pastor's conference, my senior pastor was actually there, um, and he was uh, presenting his new ministries, working with churches about schools and all that. But at one point, he took us all out for ice cream. It's always nice when dad takes you out for ice cream, right? And we're sitting there, and I said, it, it was the four of us pastors and him, and he's been in ministry like 34, 35 years, the same church. He's, he's raised kids up in his youth group, and he's buried kids in his youth group. And I said, hey, hypothetically, there's uh, four, four young pastors what would you tell him after 35 years of ministry? And tears in his eyes, he said, love the people that God has brought into your leadership, into your church. Love them. Walk with them. Out of anything that he could have said, 35 years of ministry, building projects and mission trips, all that, love the people. And so I don't trust myself. I don't want to know that stuff. No, I just want to encourage you. In every act of worship, are you following the Lord? Let him lead and guide. 2 Corinthians will talk about what you have determined in your heart, what the Lord has put on your heart to give. Just be obedient to that. Where we're not looking at who's dropping more, you know, into it. That's something they used to do in the, in the temple. They had this like upside down bugle looking thing and you'd go and put all your metal coins in there and you'd sound like a slot machine just hit the lottery. And everybody would look over and be like, ooh, look at them giving a lot of money. And then you remember what Jesus was talking about with the poor widow that just had the two copper coins? Yeah, she put both of them in. She didn't hold one back. She put them both in. And imagine the looks that you would get. Kerplunk, kerplunk. May it never be here. Whatever the Lord has determined in your heart, I ask you to be obedient to the Lord. And whatever that would be. Because at what point would Jesus look at us and say, you have neglected the weightier matters like justice, mercy, and righteousness. So how, as followers of Jesus, how far can we wander away from true biblical acts of worship and still be considered the body of Christ? Like, where's that line in the sand? At what point would he be looking at us as the church and say, you made a big deal about what you shouldn't have and you neglected the weightier matters of what I've called you to do? What's that line in the sand? Or... Is there another way? I think there is. What if we, in faith, in trust, each smack dab in the middle of our own sanctification, our own process and journey walking with the Lord with a passion and a zeal, worship the Lord with our lives, with our time, our talent, our treasure. And worship isn't just the music that we do up here. It's not just congregating together and hearing the word. Worship is merely just a recognition of Jesus Christ in your everyday life, with your time, your talent, and your treasure. That whatever you have, recognizing Christ, sovereign, the Lord of my life, sitting on the throne of my heart, that whatever he has given me, I'm gonna recognize Christ through that. He changes how I spend my time. He changes how I use my talents. I never wanted to be a public speaker at all. Now look at us. <laughs> and they're thinking, yeah, we didn't want you to be either. <laughs> but you know what? We all have a cross to bear. I hated reading in school. They're like, okay, we're going to go around the classroom and everybody read a paragraph. I'd rather wet myself. 
absolutely. Oh, yeah, you get sent home for that. It was simple. But is it not of the Lord to take our weaknesses so that it has nothing to do with me, but it's the power of his spirit? So worship merely the recognition with our time, our talent, and our treasure. And at the very end of that little section, he says, you blind guides are straining out a gnats and swallowing a camel, both obviously in Leviticus 11 saying that you can't eat gnats, in case you were curious, can't eat gnats, and you can't eat camels. So they're both against the law. And it's a very humorous uh, type of illustration that he's using. You're thinking of somebody here eating a soup, and it's like, oh, here's a, here's a small little gnat. Let me get that out of there. And the whole while, there's this camel just like swimming in their bowl. But he's also using a play on words because Jesus spoke Aramaic. And even though the New Testament was written in Greek, he spoke Aramaic. And what he was saying, it's a play on words. The word gnat and camel in the Aramaic are very similar. So he's saying you strain out a galma, G-A-L-M-A, strain out a gnat, but you swallow a gamla, G-A-M-L-A. So you just switch the two letters and you get a gnat or a camel. And so he's, he's saying it in a way that's going to be easy to remember. And we have little sayings like that all the time, you know. A bird in the hand is more than two in the bush. or what, You know, we have those like, you know, uh, uh, teamwork makes the dream work. You know, we have all these little sayings because Jesus spoke in a way that was normal within the, co- uh, the culture that it's a verbal, auditory, listening. It wasn't so much written at that time. So as he's teaching, even in the woes, he's like, I want you to remember this. Look at your lives and don't don't look at all these little gnats every once in a while trying to strain out the, the little things. Look at the camels that you got in your life. And if you don't have any camels, amen. I got a herd of camels, man, that I need to let go of and focus on what he's called us to do because it's not just this or that. He goes, you should have done both. You should have, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. That we just can't pick and choose the parts of the Christian life that we like. It's kind of like in the Bible where you have like highlighted parts and it's like, oh yeah, we highlight our favorite verses and ignore the rest. All scripture is profitable. And the commands that we have to follow Christ, we can't just choose our favorites and ignore others. That we have to be obedient to it all. And so Jesus moves on and he gets to this, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed. You look like this whitewashed tomb uh, in this culture, especially at like Passover when just a couple million Jews would be coming to Jerusalem. They would go out and they would whitewash the tombs so that you knew like, hey, that's a, that's a graveyard. It wasn't as like normal for us. Like we passed the cemetery on the way here. You know what that is. But in this era, we know, like, Jesus was laid in pretty much a cave. So you could just be walking along and just accidentally touch. Like, that's a tomb. You're going to make yourself unclean. So they would whitewash them kind of as a warning. And to clean them up, make them look real nice, because you got all the, you know, when you got visitors coming over, you clean your house finally. That's what we do. So they're cleaning Israel up a little bit. We got visitors coming in. We got to straighten the pillows. We actually got a vacuum. We got to make this look nice. And so he's looking at the Pharisees and the scribes, and he goes, that's you guys. You look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of nastiness. And like one of my pet peeves is when my wonderful, beautiful kids take a dirty dish and just set it in the sink, and they don't rinse it out. And they let all that stuff just harden on there, and you got to run it through the dishwasher nine times, right? 
And sometimes, you know, it doesn't clean it all the way, unless I'm the only person in here with like a mediocre dishwasher. And then we ask the kids to put the cups away and put the plates away or whatever. And, and there'll be days I'll reach in and grab my favorite coffee cup. And you always do the check, right? You got to do the check. You just never know what's going to be in there. And you look in and you're like, <laughs> I condemn my cup. You, you hypocrites, you Pharisee, and I throw it out. It's the same thing. It looking good on the outside, but it's full of horrible on the inside. So what's Jesus saying to these scribes and Pharisees? God is never fooled by what we show on the outside. God is not fooled by what we show on the outside. Why? Because God looks at our hearts. He did it with David, and he's never stopped. Our hearts matter before the Lord, and he sees what we truly actually are, not just our outward appearance. He sees what we truly are. He knows our thoughts. He he knows every thought that we have. He knows every action that we have. Think back the last couple of weeks. What would the Lord see? What would the Lord hear in your life? He knows you. But here's the most beautiful part. No matter how full of nasty, dead, yuckiness it is, the offer of grace is still before you. He knows the worst of who you are. And you might not even have committed the worst sin that you will ever commit yet. You, you might be these treading waters and white little lies and, and you haven't hit pro status like me. But he knows the worst about me. He knows the worst about you. And his offer is still there. He doesn't look at us and say, you know what? You're too far gone past grace. Can't, I can't do anything with you. You're just a hot mess. Sorry, you just need to keep walking down the road. And so if the offer of grace from the Lord is to everyone, I think the offer of grace as a church should still be the same that nobody is too far gone past grace to walk in here. Because if somebody's not welcome in here because of their brokenness, we're not welcome here because of our brokenness. That this is that place, that your brokenness, my brokenness, it's welcome here. And here's the most beautiful part. Even though he loves us in that condition, in his grace, in his mercy, in his love, he's saying, I have a better plan for you. You don't have to continue living in this brokenness but will you trust me in it? Will you walk with me? But he's not fooled. He sees the heart. He understands. And so why do we try to continue to put on the mask and act like everything's fine? Why not? Is there not a better way to approach the Lord? Like why do we need to put on a mask if we have the opportunity of grace before us? That we can, that we can stand naked and bare before the Lord. Don't take me too literal on that, okay? <laughs> but we can stand open-hearted to the Lord and say, I am the worst. Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners. Because I think when we approach the Lord in that kind of honesty, that's when he can work. You wanna see the Lord work in your life? Where are we putting on a show, acting like the external is a lot better and we're a lot better than what we truly are? If you wanna see the Lord work in your life, get honest before the Lord. Because if we refuse to confront our inner man, and that's what Paul would say uh, is using that term. If we would refuse to confront our inner man, we're refusing the biggest work of Christ in our life. Like how do we walk up to Jesus and say, you know what, hey, thanks for that cross, that's cool. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good this week. You know, I'm all right. I, I don't need much mercy, don't need much grace. Like I'm, I'm living good. What? Why are we refusing 
to allow God to overflow in us his grace and his mercy and his love. He already knows it. He already knows the worst of our lives. Why are we at that point holding off his grace and his mercy? Why do we, why do we hold that work of restoration, thinking that we can build it in ourselves? And some of us, we're walking graves. And I love you, and that's why I'll say it. Some of us here, showing up thinking that this is what it's about, that we sit, we listen to this dude, and we sing these songs, and, and, I'm, and that makes me righteous before the Lord. We're walking graves, as Jesus would say, full of, of dead bones and, and uncleanness. We're full of gossip. We're full of jealousy. We're full of self-righteousness. We're full of division, envy, impurity, sensuality. Jesus would say it this way, lawlessness and hypocrisy. That's some of us. And there's days, that's me. That the heart that I want to present to the Lord is far from him. But we need to undergo spiritual debridement. A little my nursing coming out. When you have a wound that's full of necrotic tissue, or sometimes you see this with burn victims, that they have to cut away the dead necrotic tissue to bring healing in that. That's what we need in our lives. That we need to cut away this necrotic tissue that's only bringing about destruction and poisoning our lives. Like we need to cut out this gossip. We need to cut out this jealousy, this self-righteousness. We need to cut out this division. We need to cut out envy and impurities in our life because it's not bringing about the life that Christ has for us. Like if we wore our sin in physical wounds, we're walking around trauma patients and we're just these open, living graves. But it's grace. This offer given to us to say, yeah, that is how you are. But you don't have to stay that way. That I have something greater. That he wants to bring restoration. He wants to bring healing in our lives. And so through this, it's going to take accountability. It's going to take a, a community around us to, to see and encourage me to rise up. That, they, that there's people in my life that see better in me than maybe even what I see. And so I need people that are going to guard the gate of my life. They're going to encourage me to walk with the Lord. I can't do this on my own. And I need people that are going to speak that into my life from a place of love, not out of a place of, uh, let me push you down so I look better. No. But the people in a, in a heart of love saying, you know what? I want to encourage you, but encourage me in the same way. Let's have a, a united mind focused on Christ that we want to not see how close to sin we can get, how close we can get to not be in the body of Christ, but how close to the Lord can we walk? How holy of a life can we live that is honoring to Jesus? That's what we need to undergo. And Jesus continues, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And what they would say is like, hey, if we lived back in the olden times of our fathers, those that killed the prophets and those that you sent, we wouldn't have partaked in that. There's no way we would have been like those guys killing the prophets and a lot of the prophets got killed or highly persecuted. You know, read the story of Jeremiah. His nickname's the Weeping Prophet. Wouldn't you love that? Like, well, what's your nickname? Uh, weeping Prophet. Why is that? Because I'm a crybaby. 
The Lord told him at one point, don't marry, they'll just kill your wife. Stay single. It'll be less destruction. And they're saying, we, we wouldn't have done that. We're holy, we're righteous, we would have accepted the prophets. Here's my problem. Explain John the Baptist then. Yes, Herod had him killed, but it doesn't look like the Jews and the religious leaders tried to step in and save. Oh, you're going to cut off John the Baptist's head? Okay, we're good with that. That they would even just sit back and allow him to be persecuted. And Jesus says, you brood of vipers. And that term means it's like they're little, and I hate snakes. Hate snakes, man. So did the Lord. Stomp them on the head. I'm just doing the Lord's work, okay? But you brood of vipers. What he's saying is they're not these mature snakes. These are little baby snakes. I don't know if that's the proper term, but it doesn't sound right, but that's all I know. With a mature snake, a venomous snake, when it bites you, it can control the amount of poison that it injects into your body. A little baby snake has no control of its poison. We'll just keep injecting, keep injecting, keep injecting. You see what Jesus is saying? You Pharisees, you hypocrites, you guys that live like this, you can't even control the amount of evil and destruction that you are bringing on those around you. You brood of vipers. And he, Jesus tells them, some, some of whom you will kill. He goes, I'm sending people to you. That's going to happen. You're going to kill them. You're going to crucify them. You're going to flog them. You're going to persecute them. And we don't have to move much into the story to see all that happen. What we have to understand is from when Jesus ascends, you know, on the cross, dies, in the grave, raises from the grave, this small little period of time, ascends back to heaven, right? And then small period of time, 50 days. And then you have the coming of the Holy Spirit, and that's the beginning of Acts. And from the very beginning of Acts, what do we see? Persecution. Like Jesus is flat out telling you, like, hey, keep reading the story. You're going to understand that you're going to do this. And now we have the stories and the martyrs of Stephen, James, Peter, John. Later, we understand Paul. He said, all of that is on you. That, that, that verse there when he's saying, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you're just as dead guilty as they were. You're trying to say, oh, we wouldn't do that. No, you'd be first in line to do that. Kind of the same way like if we would say, if I lived in Jesus' time, I would absolutely, ex if I could have seen him teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, just sitting there nicely, petting a little sheep, you know, his hair flowing in the wind, I would have accepted him. We all would have been in the crowd saying, crucify him. Because it was our sin that put him on that cross. We all would have been in the crowd saying, crucify him. And so Jesus, at the end of all these woes, so take everything that Sean said last week, everything this morning, and he gets to this very end, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? Jesus walks in, he gets to the highest place around the lake, and he just looks and says, oh, Lake of the Ozarks, Lake of the Ozarks. What I was hoping to see in you, I never saw. And what I did see was the absolute opposite of what it meant to walk and to be my nation, to be my people. And so we see Jesus crying. This is the second time in Scripture that Jesus cries. The first time with Lazarus. And it's over his death. And like death and destruction, that was never meant to be. And so Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the English Bible. 
And then here a second time, weeping over Jerusalem because of the rejection of the Messiah, God's anointed by God's chosen people. And so he says all these woes, not out of hate. It wasn't out of hate, but out of love. Because true biblical love rebukes and it warns. True biblical love rebukes and warns. And his heart broke for them. And so even for us, when we sin, God doesn't hate us, but it's a sorrow for us. Because sin is not just about breaking a rule or a standard. Yes, that's part of it. But we're breaking fellowship with Jesus. We're, we're going against the intended purpose and design. We're going against the very creative nature that he put in us to be with him. We're literally slapping him in the face and walking away from that. There is sorrow in that. 2 Corinthians 7, so the chapter right before we talk about the tithing, talks about this godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. And do we have that kind of godly sorrow? Do we see the sin in our own life and have a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance? Or do we just say, that's eh, really not sin. It's really not sin. The world doesn't call it sin. I'm going to go to a church that's not going to call it sin. Because if we don't, then why do we need repentance? What do, what do we need right and wrong for if we're never going to do anything right and wrong? Why do we need grace and mercy for? Because we haven't offended a holy God. It's not sin. Or did we offend a holy God? And do we have a godly sorrow for what we did that leads us to repentance? Even go back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. If there's no mourning for my sin or our sin, why do I need comfort then? Why do I need the Holy Spirit, who one of his titles is the comforter? Why do I need a comforter if I have no mourning? Or do we look at our lives, look at our own hearts? Do we look at those around us that we love and say, you know what? We need to follow Christ in the times that we're not. It should bring a godly sorrow in our lives, but it should lead us to repentance. So the whole chapter of rebuke and all these woes, the goal was always repentance. It was always repentance, not judgment. But if repentance is refused, judgment is all that is left. How many times do we see Jesus extending an offer, an invitation to repent and to realign their lives, to get right with the Lord and, and to step into what God has for them? And they said, you know what? We're good. I'm going to live life our own way. We're going to reject this and we're going to try to, and we, we're guilty of the same thing. We're guilty of the same thing, that God has this design and this purpose for our life and what our lives are meant to be. And we try to say, no, 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 no I, I got too good of a job. My reputation matters too much. The things that I have mean too much to me compared to you, Lord. And we do the exact same thing. But every time, here's Jesus extending this gift, this offer. Repent. Turn from those sins. And when we, it, I mean, it literally means to turn from your sins, like do a 180 away from that. So repentance is turning from our sins and faith is turning to God. And here is our offer, but do we have that kind of sorrow? Do we view sin in that way? So this chapter, full of rebukes and woes, but the goal is repentance. And so may we never be a church that refuses to recognize Christ in our everyday lives. When people talk about Calvary Lake Ozark, may they say things like, they worship the Lord with their time, their talent, and their treasure, that they're all in. 
May we never be a church that refuses to address our inner man, that we will constantly and consistently look at the word as a mirror into our own lives, not as binoculars trying to look at somebody else and say, oh, that's where you, yeah, oh yeah, you sinner over there. Uh-huh. No, this is to look at ourselves and where do I need to realign my life? That it's not about nudging the one next to you, but nudging your own heart closer to Jesus. May we never be that church that we're trying to be like the Pharisees and put heavy burdens on others, but unwilling to live up to them ourselves. And may we never be a church that refuses repentance. That at every moment, especially on a Sunday when we gather together, this is another invitation for us to repent. I don't know how your week has gone. I had a little bit of ministry time in my own heart of, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me that I've made my life something that it shouldn't have been. Forgive me of how I can be sharp-tongued towards my wife or my kids and I, can, and I can bear down heavy burdens upon them. That I worry more about my own pride or my own ego or if I'm worried about what people are gonna think while for which I preach, forgive me. May we never be a church that refuses the offer of repentance because if we refuse repentance, we're refusing the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. May we continue to be a church that serves Christ cheerfully, joyfully, not begrudgingly. I know I tease about Cal kids, but it's a joy to walk in and to have so many kids. There are churches that would love to have this many kids in the kids' ministry. We literally are running out of space. We are at a critical level with space and volunteers and our cow kids. And so we don't serve begrudgingly or like, oh, I don't want to have to hold these smelly babies because they're going to smell. If you wore a diaper, you would smell too. Get over it. But we're going to serve joyfully. We're going to serve cheerfully with our time, talents, our treasures. And we're going to continually be strengthened and renewed by the indwelling spirit of Christ in our lives. That we're going to allow him to lead and guide our lives. That there would never be a moment where Jesus would have to step in and say, why are you neglecting this? Why are you pushing against the whole, let him lead and guide? Why are you trying to go against what he has for you? And that we would continue to be a church that would walk in close fellowship with Christ and with one another. That we would cut out the gossip, the jealousy, the envy, the bitterness from our lives. We would encourage one another in our walk. And I just want to say, if there's ever anything that's going on here at Calvary Lake Ozark that you're questioning, you're wondering what's going on, or where's the, please come and talk to me. My office is an open door. If you want my cell phone number, would love to talk with you. But please come and talk with me. But what we can't have is divisions among themselves and say, oh, oh, you know what, Cliff? You know what Nick's doing over there? No, there's no fruit in that. There's nothing effective. Because you know the line that says, if Satan can't destroy us, he's going to distract us. What do you think he's going to distract us with? Envy, gossip, division. That's where he's going to distract us. And if we are a distracted church, we're a destroyed church. And if we're destroyed, then we can't be effective for the Lord. But if you have questions, absolutely, come and talk to me. I get, we all have our preference of how things should go. 
I get that. But at the end of the day, the heart is, are we loving God? Are we loving others in our community? And are we making an impact? Are we making disciples? Are we inviting people in to the saving grace and the relationship that we have with him? Are we extending that out? If this ever becomes not about those three things, we've stopped being the church and we've creeped away from the mission that God has to see in his body of Christ and we are neglecting the weightier matters that he has called us to do. May it never be said of us. So Father, we love you. We trust you. Even how we do ministry here as a church, how we do ministry in our individual lives, in every aspect of our lives, Lord, I pray that we would surrender day to day to you, that every day is this new day full of your mercy, that every morning that we would just surrender and submit again our lives to you, letting your Holy Spirit lead and guide us, that you would bring us into the different ministries and opportunities where you're already working, Lord. We're merely just coming alongside you where you're already working in the lives and the hearts of those around us. Let us be that kind of church. Let us have a boldness and a courage to serve you faithfully, joyfully, cheerfully with our lives, knowing that whatever you call us to lay down, it is absolutely worth it. That whatever you call us to let go of, we know that you have something greater for us. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. I pray that we would be useful vessels in your hands. That we wouldn't be begrudging, we wouldn't be tearing down on one another, we wouldn't let envy and jealousy and strife build in our hearts, but we would keep a constant heart of repentance. That we would keep short accounts with you, Lord, and with one another. So lead us, guide us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Thank you.